There was a little boy named Bobby, about fifth grade. And every day on the way home, he would go to visit his friend first because his friend lived in the same neighborhood. And when he would go home after school, he would always pass this porta potty on the edge of a cliff. It's just kind of a steep hill. And he was very tempted to just push it over, you know, ha, ha, ha. But he resisted the temptation. And the more he resisted, the easier it was to simply say no. But he did feel tempted. Unfortunately, one day he had a very, very bad day at school. Everything was incredibly boring. The history class was particularly boring. All they did was talk about George Washington and how when he was a little boy, he chopped down a cherry tree and told his dad the truth. And so he didn't get a spanking. He was like, okay, whatever. And then he took uh, a test in his math class and totally bombed it. It's the first time he'd ever failed a test ever. So he was not in a good mood when he was heading home. And so he gave in to temptation and just pushed the porta potty off the edge of the cliff and watched it kind of tumble down the hill and thought it was pretty funny, felt better about himself. Then he got to his friend's house. They had a good time. At the end of an hour together, he went home as was his routine. But when he got home, his dad was in a really bad mood and he said, son, do you know anything about this porta potty being at the bottom of the hill? And and sure enough, Bobby, he, he thought about it. He thought about lying, but then he remembered the story of George Washington's uh, dad and George Washington telling his dad, yeah, yeah, chop down the cherry tree and not getting in trouble. And so Bobby fessed up. It was me. I had a bad day. I pushed it over the edge. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it, but I'm sorry. Bobby was shocked when his dad picked him up, put him over his knee and spanked him a dozen times. And Bobby now is in pain and also just sort of surprised. Like, well, George Washington, when he told his dad the truth about the cherry tree, his dad didn't spank him. And Bobby's dad said, well, that's because George Washington wasn't in the tree when his son chopped it down. And the moral of the story is, don't, if you don't beat temptation, temptation is going to beat you in the end. You've got to be really careful with regards to temptation. There's a price to pay. And so today we're going to talk about temptation is very, very relevant because last I checked, uh, all human beings deal with temptation. Uh, we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus, and today we're going to be focusing largely on just what it is, and we're going to direct our attention to one of the more famous or prominent passages in all the Bible. This is Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And we're going to look at a few verses earlier and a few verses afterwards to give a little context, because the context is really important. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through His Word. This is back in Luke chapter 3, starting with verse 21. When all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So the benediction has been pronounced over Jesus. He's entering into his public ministry. It says, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Helene. It goes on. Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Very interesting way of reminding us he's the son of God. We all know this. Now, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus left the Jordan full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. During those days, he ate nothing. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, It is written, man must not live on bread alone. So he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
The devil said to him, I will give you their splendor and all this authority because it has been given over to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you then will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he took him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not test the Lord your God. After the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him for a time. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity. He was teaching in their synagogues, being praised by everyone. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, earlier this week, I, I, I got a haircut, Molly, she does it like once a month, and we we're just talking about the Bible, and I said, hey, you know, I really, after spending really years and years, actually decades, studying the Bible, memorizing the Bible, meditating on the Bible, doing sermons, I, I've come to believe that the Bible really is, I already believed it, but I really, really believe that the Bible is from God, inspired by God, written by God, and one of the reasons that I believe this is because... So much gets packed into a really, really tight space. I don't know that anyone other than God could put so much life-changing information into uh, a, a short amount of, of space. I mean, every chapter is absolutely loaded. And here, it's no exception. So we only have time this morning just to be talking about what temptation is. And the reason I mentioned the context, the before and after is to help you to understand a little bit better what temptation is. And, and I think what we see here is that temptation is the devil's attempt to get you off track, to just put you off the path. What we see at the beginning is Jesus being baptized. He's coming into his public ministry. He gets the benediction pronounced over him. You're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit is on him. And it says in verse 1, he left the Jordan, which is where he was baptized, full of the Holy Spirit. And then after this temptation is done, he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And then he's just doing ministry. He's teaching in the synagogues, being praised by everybody. All the news about him is spreading into every vicinity. This temptation is presented in such a way that it is a, a pause in the action. And obviously what Satan is wanting to do is to keep Jesus from going to the cross to knock him off of the, the path. That's the devil's agenda. See, God's got an agenda for your life. The enemy has an agenda. And the enemy's agenda is just to get you off track. And one of the most insidious things about getting off track is when you're off track, when you get off the path, it's so incredibly hard to just get back on. Because when you leave the path, it's, it's not just that you leave the path and, oh, I'm going to decide to get back on later on. When you leave the path, the path leaves you. You change directions, and as you change directions, something changes in you so that you don't just naturally go in the same direction when you want air back on. There's all kinds of examples of this. One of my favorite examples from history is that of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great had this friend, Cletus, who was his best friend. In fact, Cletus actually saved the life of Alexander the Great. If somebody literally saves your life, you're kind of indebted to them for the rest of your life. It's just one of those unspoken things. So they're best friends, but Alexander had a temper. And Cletus, I guess, teased a little too hard. 
And so we made fun a little bit of Alexander in a song. And Alexander got really mad. In fact, Alexander was so angry that his lieutenants knew that he was so angry he might want to murder his friend. And so they hid all the swords. But they didn't hide the spear. And so Alexander picked up the spear and drove it through his friend Cletus and killed him with his own hands. His best friend who saved his life. Now, after the heat of anger was over, which was like about a second after his friend was dead, Alexander was beside himself with remorse. And uh, as the story goes, Plutarch tells us that he would have committed suicide. He would have taken that spear and sliced his own throat had the people around him not stayed his hand, had they not restrained him from killing himself. He was upset. But in the days that followed and the weeks that followed, he was depressed and beside himself with grief, and he didn't know how he was going to move on. And according to Plutarch, the historian, the way that Alexander moved forward in life was he came to terms with him having murdered his friend, saying, well, I didn't, what I did wasn't wrong. Uh, See, I'm the king. And the king can do whatever he wants. In fact, the, the king makes the rules, and so I guess it's impossible for me to do wrong since I'm the king. The king can't murder. All the king can do is write. And as the history unfolds and Plutarch explains, the thing that put Alexander off course in his life wasn't just that he murdered his friend. It was the way he responded to what he had done that so corrupted the rest of his path. That's what happens in temptation. When you are knocked off the path, you don't just naturally get back on Because when you leave the path, the path leaves you. You don't just take a crooked turn. The crookedness enters into your soul. Or maybe better put, the crookedness becomes a part of you before you even leave the path. That's what's going on in the temptation with Jesus. I I really believe that when he's sitting there, this is the way I play it out in my mind. I think Jesus is there in the wilderness. There's rocks around and Satan says, take, you know, turn this stone into bread. I think that's probably rather literal. But then it says he took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the same moment. That's not literal. That can't be literal. There's no place you can go from which you can see all the kingdoms of the world. Unless you're, uh, you are a flat earther, earther. Then, then maybe it, there's that place. But we don't believe the Bible teaches of the flat earth, okay? So if I were directing this scene, it would be something like a dream sequence or something that is surreal, still very real in terms of the temptation... But this isn't literal. And then Jesus is, it says that the, that the devil took him to, a, to the, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the high place of the temple or the pinnacle of the temple and then tempts him from there. What is, is Satan like Superman or Flash and just whips him over there? This is all happening in his head. That doesn't mean the temptation is not real, but what it's teaching us is the essence of the temptation isn't actually stepping off the path. It's become crooked in the path of your head before you ever even step off. And the, the tendency when you do step off or you move to step off, you've already put yourself in a position where you're not going to immediately step back on because temptation isn't just about the external path. It's the internal path in your life. And that path inside of your life is do I trust God or not? When Jesus is quoting scripture at Satan, it's not like, oh, the scripture is magical. If you just quote scripture, Satan, you know, quits and goes away. That's not what happens. Satan only goes away when Jesus is done defeating Satan. 
the, the scripture doesn't just magically drive him away. The reason Jesus quotes the scripture and is effective in quoting it because Jesus is already committed to the reality. I'm staying on the path that God has for me because that's the path of life. We have this tendency to look at, oh, if I, if I stay on this path, I'm going to miss life over here. No. The path you're on is life. Stepping off of the path is stepping into something that is not your life. God has sovereignly given you a direction. Stay within it because anytime you step off the path, you step into death. That was Jesus' mindset toward the temptation. That's what's happening here. And again, we have this tendency when we step off the path to just go, okay, I'll just step right back on. I'm going to step out of life into death and then just naturally, you know, I'm just going to move forward with the rest of my life and no big deal. As if all Satan really wants to do is take me off my game for a day. That's not what Satan wants to do. He wants to take you out of your life for life. And that always happens when we step off the path. Let me give you some examples of this over in the book of Proverbs. In the book of Proverbs, it talks about the path being your life and and you need to stay on the path. And if you step off, it ain't going to be so easy to get back on because that just leads to another to another, which leads to death. This is over in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 23, verses 19 through 21. Listen, my son, and be wise and keep your heart on the right path. Don't join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat, for drunkards and gluttons become poor and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Proverbs talks about eating too much and drinking too much, and then you become sleepy, kind of like, you know, uh, turkey coma, Thanksgiving. And it's not just, oh, you know, you did something that wasn't, you know, morally appropriate. No, you slept through the day. Because of your decision, you missed your life. Because your life isn't off the path. It's over here. And the problem is, you take a little step, and then it leads to another step, to another step, to another step. Let me give you an illustration of this. This comes from uh, the former president of Calvin Theological Seminary, uh, uh, Neil Plantinga. He talks about addiction along these lines. He says, look, there's, there's three phases to addiction. You need to know this. Phase one is you've got some stress in your life, marital stress, work stress, health stress, whatever it is. And because of that stress, you turn to something that helps relieve the stress. That whatever you turn to, whether it's an addictive substance or pictures on the Internet or ice cream, whatever it is, you turn to that to help you deal with the stress. That's phase one. But as you go on, the thing you turn to to help you with the stress adds to the stress because now there's the addiction. Now you're gaining weight from the ice cream. Now you haven't been paying attention to your job because you've been focused on these pictures, whatever the case is. The thing you turned to didn't help. It actually made the situation worse. And then when the situation is made worse, you're in phase three because then in phase three, you're turning to the substance that you turned to in the first place and you have to turn to it all the more because your stress is worse than it ever was. And then you're in the spiral. You step off the path and you have a tendency to keep going in the wrong direction. You don't naturally just step off and step on. That's not how it works. You don't leave the path. The path leads leaves you. You don't just go crooked. The crookedness enters your soul because you didn't trust God in the first place. This is what's going on in the temptation. This is put in different ways in the book of Proverbs. Here's another example. This has to do not with the path, but just with regards to the walls, living within walls, because the walls give you safety. You step outside the walls, you don't have a life. If you don't have walls, you don't have a life. Here's how it's put over over in Proverbs again. This is Proverbs 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a person who lacks self-control. 
who isn't controlling their spirit, managing their spirit or their heart or their their emotions, their desires. And we go, well, why is that so bad? I don't want a city without walls. So you're out of control. Well, here's, if you don't have walls, you don't have a life. If a city didn't have walls, there was no culture. There was no civilization. If a city didn't have walls, it wasn't a city. We don't understand that now because we don't have walls. But back back in the day, if you didn't have walls, you couldn't have a market economy. You You could gather some grain, but then the bandits and the foreigners or whatever would come in, sweep in, take your stuff and... And get out of there. You didn't have anything with which to trade. You couldn't create um, many goods without them just being stolen by marauders. You had to have a wall for there to be an economy. You also had to have a wall in order for there to be a justice system. Otherwise, it was just, you know, one few between this clan and that tribe and all the rest. And then when you had a wall, you had a magistrate. You had civil authorities you could go to. Without a wall, you didn't have a city. In other words, without the walls, you didn't have a life. You don't step where you're supposed to step. You don't live where you're supposed to live. It's not like, oh, I'm going to check out another life. You've lost your life in the step. Stay on the straight and narrow. There's a whole lot at stake here. This is, again, not about the enemy trying to knock you off your game for a day. This is about the enemy trying to take away your life. Speaking about the enemy and lies and murders... You know, I thought this was kind of interesting. Like many of you, I, I have been watching the whole Ukrainian-Russia situation. And I thought this was kind of interesting. Did you know back in 1994, Ukraine had nuclear arms? And in 1994, they disarmed. They got rid of their nuclear weapons. And this was with the encouragement of the United States. I'm not saying it was wrong at the time. I'm just saying they had nuclear arms. They got rid of them. You know why? Because Russia promised, if you get rid of those nuclear weapons, we will not invade you. Now, hindsight 2020, but the lesson is don't trust liars who want to destroy you. Walls are important. Over in John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is talking about Satan, and here's what he says. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. His agenda is take your life. He was a murderer from the beginning, murderer, and he does not stand in the truth. Because there's no truth in him when he tells a lie, he is speaking his native language because he is a liar and the father of lies. You're dealing with a liar who wants to destroy you. You step out of where God has planned for you to be, you're stepping into death. You are falling into Satan's trap and his whole agenda is to just knock you out of your life. This is serious. This isn't about, you know, like maintaining a little moral code or I did a bad thing. No, no. There are cosmic consequences to your decisions. There's a second thing, though, I think that we need to to be aware of here. Since Satan has an agenda for your life, just like God does, and since he does want to knock you off the path, don't be surprised when you're tempted. Don't be shocked or astonished when you're tempted. Now, I'm speaking to Christians here. I don't always know who's watching or who's here, and I'm not, I'm not judging one way or the other. I'm just to say, I'm going to speak to Christians here in particular because there's something kind of weird that entered the Christian picture, I don't know how long ago, and that is this idea, if only I were more spirit-filled or a better person or more pure of heart, then I wouldn't be tempted. Wrong, 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 wrong. Okay, imagine that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you've had the Father's affirmation, uh, you you had the Holy Spirit you know land on your head. You're jumping out into public ministry. You're full of the Holy Spirit. You've never sinned. You think that um, 
Satan would be leaving you alone, that you'd never be tempted. Yeah, well, there was somebody that was just like that, one person, and he was radically tempted, tempted in every way possible. Don't be surprised when you're tempted because the devil's got an agenda for your life. Don't be shocked by it. And I also mean to communicate this too, and I've said this before, I want to repeat this because this is worth repeating every once in a while. Look, don't think you can ever be in a position or situation where you're not going to be tempted or that it's an environmental problem primarily. You may have a boss you need to get away from. He just brings out the worst in you. Or you've got some friends that you need to start over. Or maybe just in a bad work environment. I'm not saying that there aren't occasions where you need to make a move. But you will not move anywhere in this world where, where Satan's going to leave you alone. Satan's in the Satan's in the wilderness and the Holy Spirit's in the wilderness and Jesus is in the wilderness. Wherever you go, there's going to be temptation. You don't get away from it. You can't take your kids away from it. I'm not saying you can't try to manage it or be thinking about these things. But let's not be under the illusion that if only I were in another place or situation, the environment were better. You'd still be there. You can't just get away from it. Don't be surprised or shocked. In fact, I would say that Jesus, because he's full of light and life and love and the Holy Spirit, is going to attract more darkness than, than average. Don't, don't be surprised. Now, there is the occasion where, where Jesus has passed every test and every temptation has come to him. And the Bible says that, Satan departed from him, left him alone for a time, for a season. And we know later, of course, Satan is obviously there uh, before the cross at the end of the game. You know how you get tireder at the end of the game than you are at the beginning? Mackenzie, you know anything about that? I, I actually, I actually wa- I watched Grace Academy girls team won state. Yay! Which is pretty cool. And... Uh, you know, you started, I, I, you know, I was, I was judging you. I just want you to know. And I saw you missed the first three, uh, free throws, which is really disappointing. But then you made the next six and you had a great game and awesome passes. And it wasn't like the state tournament player of the century or some kind of a word like that. It was really, really, really good. But I, you didn't come out a single time in that game, did you? Did you ever, did you ever say, mom, can I have a break? No. Did y'all? Okay, because I would have left you in too. I'm not, I'm just saying. But at the, like the last five minutes, those legs were not getting the free throw up, right? We're going to work on your, your conditioning for the ne- next season. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's true. That's probably true. It was like a college court, so it was longer. That's true. But you did awesome. I'm, I'm totally kidding around. But it, you know, at the beginning of the game, you got a lot more energy. So here's Jesus. He gets tempted at the beginning of the game and he passes. Satan's like, okay, I've thrown everything at you, including the kitchen sink. I'm going to leave you alone, but I'm going to come back later, you know, two and a half years later at the end of the game and, and we're going to, we're going to go at this again. Okay. So there's that. And we'll get into that more a little bit next week, but just don't be surprised if, if you're tempted, don't be shocked because Satan's got an agenda for your life. There's a third thing and I, I need to end with this. Be surprised, be shocked, be astonished. If you are not tempted, you ought to be shocked at that. Now, I want to go at this kind of slowly. There are three different possibilities. If you are not tempted, you say, Ernest, I just go through days and weeks and months and I'm never tempted. Okay, there's one possibility that's available to you. It's theoretical. And that is maybe you are like fresh legs Jesus. You, I mean, you're full of the Holy Spirit. And, and Satan's throwing everything at you and you're just, you know, victorious and he's got nothing left and, and Satan just goes, okay, I, 
I, I'm done. You, e- even if you're starving to death, you're not going to eat a piece of bread unless God says so. And, you know, worldly influence and wealth and power have no sway over you. You have absolutely no ego. You're empty of self completely, wholeheartedly without reservation. I was going to leave you alone for a while. That's a possibility that you're just like fresh legs Jesus. It's a theoretical possibility. In fact, if you ever at any point are kind of proud of yourself or amazed at yourself at how not tempted you are, you're not like Jesus. Uh, I, I've been reading through Luke and paying attention pretty closely to things. And, I, you know, I, I never thought about this before, but Jesus never, ever does anything and says, sometimes I amaze myself. You know, he walks on water or he heals somebody, raises the widow's boy from the dead. And, and then he just says, you know, sometimes I astonish me. Jesus is never astonished at himself. And so if you were ever like in a place where you think maybe I've kind of reached uh, sinless perfection and I'm never tempted and you're astonished at yourself, I'm just going to tell you in that moment, you're definitely not like Jesus. Okay. So that's a theoretical possibility, not an actual one. And some of you are here going, well, I'm getting a little bit nervous because, Ernest, honestly, I don't really feel tempted ever. Okay. And maybe that's true. Maybe you do go through weeks and you're just serene and you're at peace and you just never feel temptation. And Okay, I'm going to say something that may make a few of you upset. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but before I go there, let me just say, on occasion... Jesus would let people know, especially religious insiders, especially synagogue attenders. Every once in a while, he would tell people who were insiders, hey, uh, maybe you, maybe I'm not the problem. Maybe it's, maybe you've got a bigger problem than you thought. And maybe part of your problem is you're blind to your problem. And that's a real bad problem because there's nothing worse than being a slave and not knowing it. There's this occasion. This is, it's later on in, in Luke chapter four. It's a really, it's a great passage. And Jesus has entered the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And uh, he's opened the scriptures and everybody's like, wow, your words are so amazing and gracious. And, and everybody was speaking well of him, the Bible says. But then there's this moment where there's a question. It's kind of unspoken, but it's a question. Hey, Jesus, why don't you do here in your hometown what you've done in Capernaum? We heard you doing some amazing things in Capernaum, healing people and giving sight to the blind and all this. Why don't you do here what you've done there? Come on. Doctor, heal yourself. You know, do something good around here. Don't you? I mean, you're a Nazareth boy. And the response that Jesus gives is kind of interesting. I'm not going to get into all the details, but his response is basically, hey, you know, I'd kind of like to do some things around here, but I can't. And it's not my problem. Y'all have a problem that you can't even see. Sometimes outsiders see things clearer than you synagogue people. And then, and so when Jesus says, it's not my problem, your problem, everybody in the synagogue was enraged at him. And the Bible says that, uh, they drove him out of town, brought him to the edge of the, uh, the hill upon which the town was built, intending to hurl him over the edge. Uh, so if anybody here wants to throw me off a cliff, two things you need to be aware of. One, I'm with you, okay? I ain't Jesus. This ain't like, there's no divide between us. Okay, two things you need to be aware of before I tell you why you should be astonished if you're never tempted. But before we get to that, just know, one, I do deal with temptation. Okay. Now, just to clear the air, all the things I'm tempted to do are really, really little sins. You know, 
No, seriously. No, I'm, I'm going to tell you, there's some things that are not tempting to me. I am not tempting to take candy from babies when mom's around. I'm not tempted. I am, I, I, in fact, I don't think I've ever been tempted to use four letter words when my mom is in the room. It's true. I'm not even tempted. The things that tempt me are, you know, little sins like pride and envy and wrath and greed and sloth and gluttony and lust. Just, you know, the, the little sins that lead to wars. Okay. So I'm with you. Okay. The, the second thing I, I want to say before I say anything is I'm maybe overdoing this. And if you're watching, I really, really want you to know this. This is not a very religious place. And I know that sounds kind of funny, but we have very grace oriented people. And so if I ever, you know, talk about sin, nobody's ever shocked. Um, because we know we have a Lord that accepts us wholeheartedly without reservation and loves us. And, and he knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And we're all good with that. And this is a place where we practice repentance on a regular basis, meaning, hey, I know I've got some issues and, 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 and I'm glad that God points these out because he's just trying to get me on the, the path of life. He isn't out to, to, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the enemy. Jesus is here to give us abundant life, and we all know this. And so I trust that we have much, we have many, many grace-oriented people here, and you're not going to want to kill me when I say this. And I'm trusting in you grace-oriented people to keep me from being killed by the few people who want to throw me over a cliff. Okay, having said that, if you're never tempted, you should be astonished. You should be shocked. You should be surprised. And and here's why. Two two basic points and then, then we're done. Uh, one, the devil may be tempting you. Uh, you just don't notice it. You say, well, how could I not notice being tempted? Okay, here's how. Uh, a weather vane doesn't feel the wind. You know why? Because it's always shifting with the wind. How could... How could Alexander the Great ever notice that he was being tempted? Everything he did was right because he's king. If you judge your life by your own life, you're never going to feel like you're tempted because everything you do is right because it's you. Chaff that blows in the air like little sails, they don't feel the wind. They feel free. They feel at liberty. They feel at peace. They don't feel the wind because they're carried by the wind completely. If you never feel tempted, that's because you're not like a wall. You're not standing strong. You're not running against the wind. If you're running against the wind, you feel the wind. If you're a wall, you feel the, the wind. If you're a chaff or a weather vane, well, you're never going to notice temptation because you're always shifting with it. Some people just say yes so frequently they don't notice. They say yes so frequently to the tempter, they don't even notice that they're saying it anymore because they're just running with the flow. That's one possibility. So if you're never tempted, be astonished. Here's a, another reason why you should be astonished if you never feel tempted. And that is maybe the devil already has you right where he wants you. Listen, if, I, if I'm holding the mic and I drop the mic, I don't have to watch the mic because I know the mic's going to hit the ground. I've already done my job. I've just let it go. It's off the path. Some people are off the path. And, and the path has left them, and the devil maybe just is leaving you alone because you're right where he wants you. So you say, well, I, I'm at peace. I feel tranquil. I feel comfortable. I don't feel challenged. I don't, I don't feel warfare or conflict or anything. I'm just happy right where I am. Um, and I don't ever feel tempted. Huh. You know, think, I'm never tempted. 
to not tithe. I just don't tithe. Okay? I'm never tempted to pray for my friends. I just don't pray for my friends. Oh. Okay? I, I'm, not, I'm not tempted to help my neighbors. I just kind of stay to myself, but I'm not tempted. What does that mean? It may mean the devil has you right where he wants you. You've given in to the ultimate temptation. What's the ultimate temptation? To get off the path. You've given up on justice. You've given up on mercy. You've given up on your friends. You've given up on advancing the kingdom of God. You just kind of checked out. The devil has you right where, you, where he wants you. So we're, we're all good. I'm never tempted. Oh. Hmm. Now, I don't know everybody or where everybody's coming from, but I, I, will, I will tell you this. This is why... And it's not just, oh, I'm going to do this moralistic exercise or check the box. And This is why you ought to pray, read the Bible, do some meditation, something. There needs to be a, a regular, ongoing self-examination of the soul. Here's why. Because if we're not careful, we can be so tempted, we don't even know we're being tempted. Now, here's the good news. Is there any good news? Can I get back on track? Okay, here's the good news. God knows that you get tempted. God knows that you have failed. God knows that you failed and I failed so miserably that we've gotten into places where we are so tempted we're not even fighting it anymore, don't even know that we need to fight anymore. We're, even, we're blind to the fact that we're enslaved. He knows that's the human condition. And you know what he did? He was tempted in every way for you and for me. This is what we remember when we Think about the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. He lived the life you should live, died the death you should have died. He got tempted on the front end before his life, and he got tempted on the back end to avoid the death, and he overcame the temptations. And he did that for someone like me, and I get to thinking about this. You know, I think the great temptation, if I were in Jesus' shoes, wouldn't have been to forego the bread a little bit longer because I'm hungry. I don't think it would have been delaying having power and authority over all the kingdoms of the earth, that that was going to come. I don't think it would be waiting for people to bow down and worship me because that was going to come at the end of the path. I think the great temptation, if I were in Jesus' shoes, would not be to endure the temptation for someone as weak as me. Why would I accept the physical death? Why instead of power would I be powerless? Why instead of being worshipped would I be derided and mocked? Why would I do all that for someone like Ernest? But he did. He was tempted in every way and then he went the distance all the way to the cross for the likes of you and me. We're going to get into this a little bit more next week in terms of who Jesus is and what he did and how we overcome. But just recognize as we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, just remember we needed this and didn't deserve it. But he gave us what we didn't deserve and I'm really glad of that. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, okay? Nobody looking. If you're here today and, and you're watching and you would say, you know, I, I know I need a Savior and I have fallen short and I need a, I, need, I don't just need to be forgiven of my sins. I need, 
I need to really turn from them. I'm ashamed that God would have to do what he did for me, but I see that he did. I I can't save myself. It's not just that I got off and I can blame everybody but me. It was the crookedness in me that made me step where I stepped and move where I moved. And But I know God loves me. I know he's got grace for me. I know he's got a wonderful plan to put me back on track and have me walk in absolute thorough abundance in life. And so, Ernest, I don't, I don't really know that much, but I know this much. I know that Jesus Christ loves me, that he lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died. He endured every temptation on the front end and the back end of his life. And he still said yes to the cross because he was saying yes for me. And I want to receive Christ as my Savior and Lord. If that's you, I just want to lead you in a prayer right, right where you are. God, I know that I've sinned. I've fallen short. But I also know that there is a Savior, that there is forgiveness that is available for me, that Jesus lived the perfect life and was in the position to to present himself to you as the perfect sacrifice on my behalf. And so, Lord, I just pray that what Jesus did for me would be applied to my life. Thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, I want to encourage you in that relationship. Please reach out to me after the service or send an email to me at at, at ernest at msbchurch.com or brett or jonathan. Just reach out to us and let us follow up with you and help you. But for now, let's continue on in worship as we think about the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. And, And I'm going to invite all of us just to bow our heads for a moment of silent meditation confession. Everybody except for Paul. Paul, I need you to go bring me the elements.